Hello and welcome to the D&D 420 podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better dungeon master. I'm your host, Eric M. Hunter, and I am a struggling game master trying to figure out how to tell a better story. Joining me shortly is Jimmy Shields. He is the creator of D&D 420 and an avid D&D fan with over 30 years of experience. In this episode, we have a Q&A section with our grand tormentor, Jimmy Shields. Uh, we talk about things all from inexperienced players to getting people involved to stats and rules of the game itself. Q&A, Q&A. with the Grand Tormentor himself, Mr. Jimmy Shields. Hello, sir. We have questions Hello. that require answers from the one, the only Grand Tormentor, which is you. That's me. Uh, so we're going to start off with a couple of softballs. Oh yeah, these are these are cool, man. I you know I had a chance to look over them, so I've got some preloaded ideas. These are from the internet, from Facebook, uh, and from uh, I'm part of some groups and stuff. So these are these questions came from a couple of different places. Uh, we won't mention any names because I, I want I want everybody to uh, remain anonymous. You don't have to have your name out there even for anyone. If you know if you ask this question or if this question can help you, awesome. Just thumbs up your. Uh... Your phone or your MP3 player or your car or however you're listening to this when you're when your question gets ans- answered, just give us a thumbs up. So give us give us All a right, thumbs so, up. Alright, so question one. Can my warlock gain legendary resistance with a true polymorph spell? The monster manual says I will not get the legendary or layer effects. That's true. The monster manual on page eleven says if a creature assumes the form of a legendary creature, such as through a spell, it doesn't gain that form's legendary actions, layer actions, or regional effects. The Monster Manual does say that in the new errata. That is new errata. Uh, that's not in my Monster Manual. Say, cause that's, this because this is new to me. Because from my understanding was, if you polymorph, if you polymorph. Yeah. So, okay, so yeah, a couple of years ago or a few years ago, that would have been true. And if you have a Monster Manual that does not have this errata in it, then that's true. The thing is, though, legendary resistance is not a legendary action. It is not a layer action or a regional effect of that layer. A legendary resistance is in the stat block. What makes it confusing is the name legendary resistance, and then you have legendary Mm, actions. So it is not a legendary action. It is not a layer effect or a layer action or anything as such as such. It is simply a type of resistance that you gain by becoming that creature. Yes, you do get it. That is an awesome ability that you will have. Uh, legendary resistance is like lucky times 10 for right. your saving throws. So, well, not times 10, but it's just awesome. So, yes, absolutely your warlock or your um, druid, I think, also gets true polymorph. will be able to do so. So hope that clears up with you and your dungeon master. So an easy one. Not too bad. That's an easy, easy one. one. A softball. Like you said, you, you were throwing softballs at first. I appreciate that. Get, get warmed up. Get right, warmed let's, uh, up. Let's go for something that's a little bit more broader. Something that's got a little bit more um, open-ended, if you shall. Okay. Uh, okay. My players okay. I'm, I'm have excited. never played D&D before, so I'm trying to figure out ways to get oh. them to act more independently. My most successful method method is to have an NPC describe a problem to them and then just let them run loose. Any advice? Oh, yeah, this is, uh, 
I know what he's talking about here. And the, the cool thing is they, you know, that this player and I actually had a chance to talk or this dungeon master, um, they, they mentioned that their game is set in the Harry Potty, Harry, Harry Potty. It's in it's the in Harry, the Harry Potty, world. Potty world. Oh man. man, I'm already so high. Hold on, man. man trademark let me, Harry let me Potty. Take a TV timeout. Okay, so in the Harry Potter universe, and he did that in order to kind of get them interested, right? Great idea, man. Already, I can tell that you got your mind in the right place um, to draw them in. <coughs> the thing is, what you're doing is going, if you're give, having these NPCs describe the problems to them, it's kind of like a um, choose-your-own-adventure or Oregon Trail or something, point-and-click. So you don't want to do too much of that. That is a guiding method, which really helps. Like, And, it, and it's cool because like, if you want to give them options, the NPC can do so. And we talked about that quite a bit in, um, I believe, in the first season of our D&D 420 mm. podcast, Dungeon Master's Help. Um, using those NPCs in that way is great. And you don't have to use just one NPC that way. You can have NPCs that kind of run with the group and lead by example. I think role-playing an NPC and not metagaming, using that Dungeon Master information and trying to show them what it's like for you to be a little bit of a player in a couple of scenes here and there can get them pushed in the right direction. Just role-playing, because if we want them to act independently, um, make decisions, go places, you know, so that they can stumble over events or run into things... Um, you want to gently guide them with your with several NPCs with little things here and there. You know, maybe dropping little clues that they can relate back. And some of them are correct, and some of them aren't. So you know, at first you don't want to give too much misinformation because they're so new. We don't want to throw them off or jade them or make them think, well, you're just trying to screw us over. Because you know, ultimately, when you get really good players that are really jamming in your game, you'll throw all kinds of fastballs, curveballs, dodgeballs, I don't know, you name it. You throw whatever you want at them and they'll appreciate it that they've got to sift through that stuff. So um, then you can kind of decrease that NPC guidance over time where you're, where you're role-playing with them. Or even you can have, uh, depending how you play, if you play in person, if you know someone who's a really good player that doesn't play in your game, maybe they're in another game, they can stop by for a couple of hours and join in, but they don't really want to be a part of it. Give them an NPC to run that it's not an NPC with too much information or it's not an NPC that's going to give too much away. But that guest spot will give them an idea of how a player is supposed to act. You know, um, making decisions. Well, I think we should go here. I think we should do this. A little nudge in that direction goes a long way. If you're playing online, hey man, I'd love to star in your game or have another player star in your game. You know, just for an hour to say, hey, this guy really has played a lot of D&D and um, I just want him to come in. He's got this NP. I want him to play this NPC. And I can tell you right now, guest spots are one of the coolest things I've used in a game in order to make things happen. You can give that person a tiny bit of information that you want them to act upon or use. They come in, they, they do their thing. If they're a really good player, they can be an example for your players. That's what you really want to do is somehow find a way to be an example. And I think that that will help 
push them in the right direction and give them ideas of how they can continue forward in the future. Because ideally, you don't want your players to walk into a town and then have somebody come up to them and say, hey, hey, we have problems. Hey, we have problems. Like you want them to have a purpose and something that they're trying to accomplish. And then when they get to a town, let's say, then suddenly there is a problem because it goes against exactly what they're trying to accomplish. So the the problem exactly. is transferred, I guess, from place to place, if that makes sense, rather than just like, because to me, like when you walk into, and again, like if they're new players, then the, the quote unquote video game aspect of this makes more sense to them where it's like, hey, you guys are trying to find this treasure, but this guy can help you to find the treasure, but he needs help with this now. Like that's a very video gamey thing to me. It is. It's very video gamey, and your game can get stuck in that video gamey mode if that's the if that's the mode you always use and what they expect. And then when you start to try to change it up, they may grow resistant and say, "We don't like this." So you just got to be careful and decrease that guidance over time. And the the key here is that they've never right. played before. That says more than just they don't know how to play D anD. d They're walking into their first towns, so they may not have things that they really know that they want to accomplish. Uh, therefore, helping them with backstories as well, like talking about motivations is key with new players because they need to understand that my character is another, it's a, it's a person that exists in this world that I've created. This isn't just a dice game where we're going to see how many times I can hit the cobble before it dies. This is a, a role-playing game where you are that character in that setting with real motivations, desires, wants, needs, goals that aren't necessarily go kill beholders. These needs and goals need to be something very common that can give that character life. If you have one drunk in the group, that's all you need for somebody to make a decision to go to a tavern or an inn or a bar. If you have a cleric in the group, that's all you need. If they understand their cleric's motivations the understanding that they need to stop in at the local church that they've never been to before. Like, why would you want to do that? Well, I can tell you this. When I worked at a retailer and I went to a different city, the first thing I wanted to do as a retail manager was see what their stores looked like. See if I was doing it as good as them. See if they do something different than me. So as a cleric walking into the town, you may have that kind of motivation. Maybe you're a little jealous of what they have here. So you're getting them to go to places where there can be key events or information um, that they'll want to find, you know, is really lies in knowing who your character is. And as well as what we've already talked about, knowing how this is going to work as a game. Good, good, good. All right. Question number three. Uh, Unless if you had something else to... Uh, no, man. I hope that answers your question. Uh, it's open. Not, it. Yeah, know, I mean, if, there's, if I there's so much yeah. because, I mean, what kind of players are you dealing with? Like, yeah, just because they're first time, it doesn't mean that they've never been in a role-playing setting before. It doesn't mean that they've never acted out before. You know, like, there's there's pulling and pushing. Uh, you can do triggers. Um, that's one thing that I've done where it's like um, with a character, like, oh, with your you, you mentioned before with the backstory. It's like, oh, well, this person that you know is a very, you know, they're a very, um, they're like a mentor to you. And then you tell another player, like, hey, this guy, um, he, like, meant a lot to you. 
you know, and then you just casually bring it up in conversation with your group. And the two guys are like, oh, I know them. And then now you've built a connection between these two players and now they're playing and they're acting more independently. You know what I mean? Like they're building a dialogue amongst themselves. Correct. And one of the things that I, I kind of caution people against, <coughs> sorry, one of the things I caution people against is that you, what you might find is that they're, they are not receptive to the way that you might have played in the past or that you want to play or the, the vision that you have. It may take time. Um, they might have a little bit of um, anxiety about just impromptu, improv-type acting because that's really what, what I think that a lot of players, a lot of DMs, when we see that vision of the future of our game, because I can see my game world playing out like a book or a movie, like an epic tale. I can see it playing out and like I can see the landscape and I can see the biggest baddies and I can see these these people. And I even got like a cut scene in my head, like an intro for it and everything that I could visualize. And then you want to have these really kick-ass players come out and go, I am Torvac the, the Bold. I am a barbarian from the Northlands. And that's just not probably going to happen right away. Um, you maybe watch too much Critical Role right. or whatever. That These guys are professionals on Critical Role. They are absolutely professionals. And these guys on Weed D&D, these guys are actors. That's what they do. They are stage actors. They do this stuff for... You know that they've been doing it their whole life. Your players may not be actors, and that's okay. But we want to um, gently lead them in the right direction and talk to them about those motivations. And you know, maybe have a one-on-one conversation on the telephone, or be like, "Can you come twenty minutes early? I'd love to talk with you about your character's motivations." And you can even say, "So I can understand how to connect you to the game more." And you might find out that they thought, well, my character is shy or my character is this. And so then you can use that to your advantage with NPCs that not necessarily say, here's the situation you need to react. More so saying, oh, you know, this is what happened to me. And you just said something that about that character that they can't avoid now. They have to get involved. Then they ask questions. Next thing you know, it's like, well, now that you mention it as an NPC... Right. Now that you mention it, this is a problem yeah. I'm having. And it, and so that's a great way to like segue into just role-playing and making choices. And um, hopefully that they get to the point where they at least say, say, do you, I want to leave this town or I want to go look for this treasure or, and, you know, pre- present them options as well. Because um, like if you set it up to where, and this goes back to what one thing we talk about, don't prep too much for the day. Because you right. might regret it, and then then your prep means nothing if they made a different choice. So, if they have a ton of choices, um, it can be confusing. If they only have one choice, it can be frustrating. So you know, I don't know if that's related to it in any way, but um, giving them, making sure that they find choices, different choices, is also key. And like, they know that well, we have this thing to do, but this other thing came up as well and then this other thing and they can see that your world is real and alive and living that it's not just going to be we go get a quest from the quest giver we complete the quest we get paid yay we win dnd and uh, hey man if that's how your game is and you guys are having fun sweet that's how i used to do it too i've been doing this for 33 years my first quest was we went to a 
a bar. We met a quest giver for whatever, you know, and I call it a quest giver because it can come as a form of a guild leader or a town leader or a king or a despot or a bandit or a lord or another character, whatever. But it's right. a quest giver. We all know what it is. It's a bulletin board, essentially. So, and that's cool too, man. Like, that that can be really great for like a West Marches style campaign or something uh, where it's just impossible to know who's going to be there. And then you can kind of control which quest goes up anyway. So that can be cool that way, but let them know that there are lots of options. Every interaction with a new NPC may present other options. Many of those options may be mundane. But that's cool because then they can have a, an insane amount of fun just role-playing. And, and kind of to me, I think that's where you want to end up a lot of times especially with new players if you can lead them to a path where we're not rolling any dice because everything's happening naturally and there's no no reason to distrust or lie or to deceive or to charm or what have you um so you know try to give a bunch of options as well so i think the bullet points are you know don't get caught up into one device that they get used to you can try to invite another tenured player in to give an example but you do want to give examples of how how this game is going to work help them with their backstories and motivations and give them plenty of options but not too many don't confuse them don't confuse them very good and again if i if like that's not really what you meant if i talked about a lot of things it's not what you meant um go ahead and you know send me another message and i'd be glad to address it in a different way in the future yeah, don't don't ask me, ask Jim. Um, okay, uh, I am. Uh, you had some great no, ideas I, yeah, there, man. Though you did, I just been you listening did. to the podcast. Um, I've been looking for ways oh. to run mass combat. How would you run a particularly oh. large scale combat between two major armies? And then quotation marks. It says it's important to the story that I'm telling. Um. Well, I don't run mass combat. I just do not because I'm a little bit of a stickler for the rules and the rules become very dense in mass combat. So when we're talking about armies, you want to, you've zoomed way out from the game. Um, we are a group of four players with interactions with similarly sized groups and you can fight four players against 20. That's very controllable, but having a thousand knights and 10,000 undead, with regimens that of different types of skill sets or zombies and skeletons and all this stuff that is just not going to happen it's just not going to happen what i like to do is pick moments zoom way in on very specific moments that the players can react to and you can um narrate the combat from afar so you can zoom out and narrate so as you look upon the battlefield, you can see that the right flank is successful in pushing forward, but the left flank seems to be having trouble as they've sent a contingent of ogres with these big giant morning stars crashing down upon your men. And, you know, get really um, kind of flamboyant with where you want them to be, where you've got something staged. They can then say, well, that's we fought ogres before. Let's run down and help. They get there and where the ogres are coming crashing in you you create a battlefield that's kind of cut out of the rest of the battlefield and it's you again you've zoomed in on it 
Now, there's all kinds of things going on around them, and you can even use the, the, the PC encounter with the bad guys or those ogres or what have you that are coming through as a way to lend morale to the troops around them, and you, and which I recommend, actually, because it'll make the players feel really accomplished in there as they do this stuff. And then you just have a little combat. The characters are not soldiers. They're not... The thing with D&D... I'm not playing a sentinel like that just I'm one of a hundred in this group. I'm not a, a foot soldier. I'm a hero eventually. And that's what makes D&D so cool is that the characters are meant to stand out, to be the stars. Stars don't stand in a shield wall and hack through a thousand goblins. They don't do that. They have a history of that. That's how we got to first level. Or that's how we became fighters. That's how we became barbarians, whatever. We are now heroes. We run down wherever they're trying to bring the ballista in to deal mass damage. That's where we want our players to be. If there's wizard in the back that's, that's um, supplying the archers with burning pitch, that's where we want to be. If they're bringing in a war machine to batter down our gates, that's where the players need to be. You know, you create these moments of tension that are a problem in the battlefield, they can go and solve it. And then you narrate some more. Having seen your heroic displays, the rest of the army cheers that are nearby, and you can see a great surge as the momentum shifts into your your side's favor. You know, you can say stuff like that and get, and you know, we feel like it's a huge win now. Then that you could even have them play out the battle that way from that zoomed-in spot, and have that be kind of the the event that brings that certain battle, not necessarily a war, but that certain battle, to into a victory. So I I don't if you want to make the rest of it random, you can just simply roll like a resistance die, and say divide the army up into I don't know four quadrants or five or six, however you want to do it, and then roll, give each one like a toughness or a difficulty rating, difficulty class, and then roll a 20-sided die to see if they, if which side is doing better. Um, it's very contrived, but it's also a way to do it that can be, it's like so as a DM, I like to be surprised too. So you can set it up so it's more than likely going to go a certain way, but and as you narrate, you can have little areas that aren't doing as well, and maybe the players can run there and help solve those issues. But don't don't think that you're going to roll a twenty sided die for every attack in the battle, two d eights plus whatever for every damage in the battle. That's just nonsense. You're going to drive yourself crazy. It's not going to be fun. It's not going to turn out the way you wanted it to. Because usually in mass combat between armies, there's a thousand scenarios that are exactly the same as the last. And that's not what we want to do in D&D. I get that the war is important to the story you're telling. I get that. I have that too. Um, but we just we didn't come here to play large-scale war games. There are other games for that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I know when you see things like Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones and you see those massive, you know, thousand on thousand battles like that stuff looks neat. But I mean, the other thing that's that's a movie. Right. Moment. And so and not a not a right. And what I was going to mention was it's like those movie moments. I mean, just that final fight scene um, 
in Game of Thrones, it took them, what, three weeks to prepare, and it took them ten minutes to shoot. Like, that's... And, you know... Yeah, and here's the funny thing about that, what, what we talked about. That's a lot of little zoomed-in right. things. Think of it. Each time we see it, we're really seeing from the perspective of one or two characters that we want to tell their story. That's what you're doing. You're telling the story of the characters, not the story of this war. The war means a ton, and that's what your narration is about, guiding them in the right direction, giving them enough information about your game, and giving a really massive effect of death or whatever um, whatever you're trying to accomplish by having this war because, you know, it can ruin lives. It can um, take people's families away. And that could even be part of that little zoomed-in portion where they've broken through the wall now to the west right. side. My family lives on the west side. You can have a chase scene that leads through war-torn streets until you get to that moment where we zoom in where they've just breached the home and the wife is there being held down by an orc and you kill him that and you know that is exactly what's happening in game of thrones or lord of the rings in those mass combats we only see a fragment then they zoom way out and you see all of these people fighting there's no and ha, that those people didn't train those are just extras that are like kind of swinging a sword but we zoom way out and it looks awesome because everybody's in gear and there's this whole haze over the whole thing and there's fire burning and there's smoke but if you zoomed in on it you know fred and tom are there like kind of laughing while they're doing it or whatever you know they don't, they're not the actors that kit harrington is they're just going through the motions so you have this beautiful zoomed out narration I think that's good. Yeah. Like, and it's appealing, but so. it's just not practical. It's, it's not practical. Yeah. Zoom in, find a way to tell that story in the combat. It'll be a lot cooler and a lot more memorable. All right, Jim, we're to the last question. And it, my friend is a doozy. So, ah, oh, yeah, I saw this one and, um, I really wanted to, I hope I have an answer. I'm just going to say that. Uh, it I says, have I have several different types of players in my group of six to seven. Uh, a few really like to role play and speak in character a lot, while some of the others prefer combat and totally check out if there aren't in a combat encounter. Another player really likes to read all the books, so I guess it's fair to say that he knows the rules better than I do at this point. Uh, how can I keep everyone happy and still run the game I want to play? Please help. It feels like my game is falling apart. Oh, man, I cut that one down. There was a lot more to this one. Um, and after hearing you read it, I wish I'd left another line in there. Um, another player really likes to read all the books. It's fair to say that he knows the rules better now, and he likes to let the DM know that he knows oh, better. Oh, okay. Um, so that that's a problem. There's several things going on here that, yeah, it probably does feel like your game's falling apart. I, we didn't talk about how um, how much have these players have played with him or where they are in the story, just that this is happening. But it seemed to me that things were going pretty well up until recently. And I don't know if you've added players to the group. Yeah, six to or, seven seems like um, a lot. Man, I used to do that all of the time. And I know you've been in larger games of mine as well. Um, 
It's very attractive to say yes to everyone who wants to play. But you have two games going on at the same time. Because what I first see here is that if you got seven people, you could easily put three of them into one game and four of them right. into another one, break it up, and you could have a combat-heavy game and a role-play Because realistically, game. if you had six to seven people, if you're wanting to get anything done in a session, you're probably playing for, what, three, four hours? At least you got to play for yeah. three to four hours with six Whereas to seven if you people. Had two... And then, honestly, you haven't gotten yeah. much Whereas if you had two groups, you could just role-play for two hours apiece, play for about the same amount of time with both groups, and get a lot more accomplished. Yeah, and feel like everyone's right. a part of the game and you're not... There's a lot of tricks, in my opinion, this isn't always true, but there's a lot of tricks that you got to employ to keep a group of six or seven moving along. And if there's a difference in style and a difference in investment into that game, it's going to feel even clunkier. Right. Especially if you're not doing these things that I highly recommend. Like, um, there's a... There's like a talking stick. We've all seen it in like the corporate meetings oh, or yeah. whatever, and maybe you haven't. Like, you can't talk unless you have the talking stick. That's one thing you can do. And you could even have a couple of them so that two people can be carrying on a conversation. But that gets really hairy because somebody doesn't want to hand it off because they're still talking and somebody else wants it. So I don't like that anyway. But there's things that you can do. Um, you can run in turn. Like, even conversation goes in turn. I've seen that. And I don't like it because it's not it's not fluid i don't like playing out things that are happening in the game in turns unless it needs to be we just play if it's a conversation or if we're haggling or some little things are going on every every so often i got to do a skill check let's do those things very fluidly and keep it loose and fun and like those people that really want to do combat you can run a game in two hours that's two combats and then you just put narration between to lead to the next combat so that they know what, why they're fighting. And it sounds like they'll probably be happy. <coughs> or let them check out. Who cares? And say, that character doesn't speak much. And uh, let them totally check out while other people roleplay. But if they're complaining about it, this isn't the game you want to play in with seven players. Um, everybody wants a different thing. Um, you know, you got two really distinct types of players here, and it sounds like several of each, yeah. or a couple, two or three of each. So that that's my number one problem with what I see here, and I don't I don't mean to like like pick at your game, but if you've got six or seven and it's mismanaged or um, unmanageable for several reasons, always the the point is going to be to have a more congruent group that's smaller and everyone wants to do the same type of thing and you're going to have a lot more success. A lot. Now, let's say you do want to continue do playing with six or seven people. Yeah, so we have some, know, we have some archetypes players here. So how would you deal with these particular archetype players if you were going to keep the group as is? Yeah, if we're going to keep the group as is, which ugh, um, even I have groups where I'm just like, it's better if we do it this way and bring the game to an end if it's a problem break it off do a different group you guys come back at another time but um, if you're going to deal with the archetypes something to do to keep roleplay happy people involved is when you're in combat roleplay more 
in combat. Because a lot of role players, when they get into combat, they feel like the game changes. And it's not as fun because all of a sudden it's become a board mm-hmm. game. And we're not doing the combat portion where um, I'm not a big fan of this myself where I let the, the player describe their move and it can sometimes come across as insane, right. like impossible to do in the six seconds a lot of while trying to navigate a battlefield and defend yourself. You're going to do this spinning wheel kick while you're in the air and coming around like whatever. Um, especially if they're new newer players, they think that they can run across the ledge of a wall, jump bounce off of the ogre's chest you know land on their friend take the helmet off of them put it on themselves slit the neck of the kobold next to him like man you just described six turns slow down but um but to role play more though like you know tell me how that swing comes if you if, if you're saying stuff like ah oh, with a two-handed overhead chop i'm going you can see that i'm going for the face right. Then they roll, and it's a miss. Now, ah, as as your sword just glances off his shoulder pad, you see the ogre just dodges nimbly out of the way. That's fine. If you got a little bit more storytelling to it, um, where there's actual speaking, where on my turn I might say a few words, and don't let your players get too carried away especially in a large group but that i simply say something to the bad guy and as a dm and you've got six or seven people i might even encourage you to have a sheet in front of you where it has all of the characters names for this particular encounter i make those myself for my game and um people who listening are more than welcome to those if they want to try them but most of the stuff I have is 3.5 centric. Right. I'm converting it now to fifth edition, so I can I can convert that over. If there are people who want to use that, um, just hit me up and let me know, and I'll send it over to you. Um, but where you have these little things, you could even write a little note that they've said something, and it, you don't have to even write down the words that they've said. Just that they have said something to the. Because not everyone's going to be doing this, it sounds like. You might have a couple of people. Then on that ogre's turn, they go to attack that person. You can see that that person said something. You go to look at the AC, like the ogre needs a 19 to hit Bob the Archer. Uh, Oh, Bob the Archer was heckling him last time and said something. What did you say last time, Bob? To which the ogre replies as he's coming down. And they're hanging on, waiting for that role-playing moment to, to resolve now. You're doing it in turns, having a little bit of a conversation. In combat, we are role-playing in turns as part of it. Because if your action is to cast a spell, you can't speak. But if your action is to swing a sword, you can be talking the whole time. I've seen it in plenty of movies and in plenty of books where these two get mouthy with each other. And some of those are the greatest moments in the game. So role-players want to role-play. On the on the opposite end of the spectrum, we got people who are combat driven and just want to win with the cool abilities that they put on their sheet. I got all these cool abilities. We just talked for two hours about nothing. Didn't get anything done. We didn't do. I didn't roll one die. I didn't use any of the shit that I picked for my character. I hate this. Well, well, if you're just role-playing a lot, throw little rolls in there for them. Make them roll the dice. That's what they really want to do, man. They want to roll the dice and know that the abilities they chose meant something. 
Um, so when you're having social encounters where they're trying to get information, really make them roll those deception checks or insight checks. Um, have little actions that NPCs do that require them to roll so that they can see, oh, he was trying to impress us with some physical activity that we rolled a dexterity for just to see how well he did it. Um, you know, they might even be trivial things, but if it starts to make changes in the game that might not have happened otherwise, that that is a really good moment to, to make them looking at their sheet, looking at their stats, uh, make them look at what they need to be doing and try to figure out creative ways. Now, it becomes like combat when it's my turn to do something. I've got to die to roll in order to make something happen that couldn't have happened without it. So that's that's one way to kind of appease both, you know, and make make everybody a little happier. But I also want to say point out that with that large of a group, don't spend too much time with what one person does because everyone else, with even if they don't say it, could get um, disgruntled. Yeah, they start looking like they're the star with, of the game. The star, the spotlight hog, so, what have you. So just be be careful. All right. Now, what about what about the large. rule? The rule, the knower of all. Oh, the guy that reads all, all the, the rules. Man, that guy. If your guy, if you're playing Lost Minds of Fandelver, he owns it. It's on his shelf too, and he's read it twice. Um, I get it. Um, I don't. Th- that's one of the reasons I don't run modules because I've DM'd for DMs and that started way back in you know AD&D in the late 80s early yeah. 90s and I got a distaste for modules because of exactly this problem I had a player who really read all the books all of them if he could get his hands on it he would buy it and he had a shelf that was a mile long full of books um, super impressive looked like a bookstore and back then there were a million yeah. books. Now there's like like fifty books or something. Right, yeah. <laughs> like a, like that's all there is. <laughs> there were sixteen thousand books for this edition that I played. <laughs> but um but no, I would say that for that guy, you want to have a conversation with him. And I don't real I don't usually like to answer these kind of questions, but there was so much going on with this person. Um I would have a conversation with him and ask if he wants to be a dm sometimes too and that when i'm dming you kind of leave it till the end of the session and we can talk about what your problem was we can address it but in the meantime let's not ruin everyone's fun because that's generally what happens when you have a rules lawyer you have to stop and look the rules up every single time there's a debate because you're pretty sure you're doing it right as a dm nobody's perfect though and I say the same thing about the guy who's read all the books. Nobody's perfect. He may or may not be right. So what happens? We look in the book. And then we have to take the time out of the game five or six times in a three or four hour game to, to spend several minutes finding the right page, reading the right line. Sometimes it comes six turns later and it's too late and they're, they're calling it out. I figured it out. I found it. It's on page 236. Right. <laughs> I was right. Nobody cares, dude. Nobody cares if you're right. If you're a rules lawyer and you're interrupting your DM's gameplay, shame on you. Because nobody else in the game really cares. You may have two rules lawyer. That might be a thing. Your group may have two and there's two people that are over there wanting to bump fists about it. But the people who aren't rules lawyers, 
trust their DMs to make judgment calls in situations where we don't know for sure, where we have two people that disagree on the rules. Always let the DM call it. However, being a responsible DM means that later on you figure out what the true meaning of that rule is. You can go online and ask tons of people questions. Um, that's the way to deal with it is to figure it out by the next session right. and say to the group, you remember, guys remember when Tom and I had this butting of heads and I said, we're going to do this and give me this role. And then he said, oh, are you sure that you don't roll a such and such for it? Hmm. You m- maybe. I'll tell you what. Let's do it this way now because it makes sense in my head for the situation because I'm the DM. I'm going to make a call here. Let's not slow the game down. And can we do it my way? And then Tom says yes. And after the game, we talk about it. And I say, damn it, you're right. Okay, so next week, I'm going to start my game saying, hey guys, you remember when Tom and I spoke about that? You know, he happened to be right on that one. So moving forward, when we're in that situation, that's how we're going to roll it. That's what we're going to do. And that does two things. You maintain control of your game and nobody has to be annoyed by all the interruptions and the wasted time because those combat guys are going to be really pissed they got to put up with this shit yeah because <laughs> that is that's not role play or combat um and the rules lawyer gets to know that he affected the game in a in a truly positive way and if that's not good enough for him you might just say hey man let me know when you're running a game and i'll play in it but um it's fair to say he knows the rules better than you. So it's fair to say that you know, don't play in the game. I intentionally remove myself from a game where I'm not happy with the rules. I've played, it's been a long time ago, but I've played in a game where the DM didn't know how to do movement. And it really frustrated me that people were able to make these tremendous moves with their play, their characters because they didn't realize that's not how it works and they're just misinterpreting the rules and the DM wasn't counting squares. And I brought it to his attention, and he said, I don't like to, to nitpick my Oof, players. man. Is that and nitpicking, I'm, though? Like... I'm not going to cheat. I'm not going to move as far as I yeah. want to move. Well, because there's just, just the, I mean, again, to go back to the rules, there are so many spells and, like, enchantments and all kinds of stuff. They're like, you have to be within X amount of feet, or this, the area effect is this like if you just disregard that completely that 30 feet per turn thing has been around forever and there's a reason that it's done that way because all the spell effects and all of the other movements and all of the things that matter about placement on the board are based on how far you can move it becomes extremely powerful to move a couple of extra squares each turn because you just don't understand how the rules read. Man, that's brutal. Yeah, I don't think and I can I, play that either. It, it, right, because what am I going to do? Am I going to be a rules lawyer who says, Stop, guys! This isn't any fun. I'm mad. I don't want to play because you're letting people get away with murder. No, man. You know what? If everybody's cool with it but you, rules lawyer, and that's me when I'm a player, I'm a fucking rules lawyer. Pardon my French. Because I don't, I want to play by the rules, and I I understand you, rules lawyer. I do. It hurts my heart to play in a game where nobody cares about the rules and they just want to wing everything or make up the rules as they go. If you're going to change rules about how things work, everyone needs to know from 
day one. If you don't play that check that way, don't let me build a character that uses that check the way the rules are supposed to, and then I get out there and find out right. it doesn't work because you've homebrewed something or or whatever. If something's different, make sure everyone knows or agree to say in session zero, we are rules as written group or we are a rules as intended group or we are a group who has a lot of home rule rules and these are the exact ones we use. Never put a rule into the middle of the game that will disrupt the flow of rules as written out of the blue. Don't do it. Don't blindside people that way. It will make them quit your game quicker than anything else. Um, So don't do that. But on the same token, if you do want to put those things in, it needs to be agreed to by everyone who wants to play. So, so I get your rules lawyer. Like I want to play by the book too, but let your DM trust your DM. Trust that your DM has your fun in mind as well. Because as a DM, the best advice that I can give to another DM is to make sure that you and your players are really having a good time together, whatever that takes. If it means fudging some rules for them and we know that that's how it's going to work or changing the way that something works because we all like it better that way, that's friggin' fine. But know that it's going to affect other things that you may not have seen. Almost guaranteed. And when that comes up, be open to interpreting those things again with your other with your players and with your rules lawyer. Because um, I don't think that there's anything wrong with a rules lawyer until they interrupt right. play. Yeah, interrupting play Just don't is let like, them interrupt play. that's when things really start to get off kilter. Yeah, if especially if you have a large group, and especially if you have a large group that's already like kind of getting wonky because everybody has a different sure. thing in mind. So, so that was a that was a big, multi part question, and I hope I was able to get to the core of some of the things that are happening there, and at least give some ideas. Um, there is no answer, man. There is no exact answer. This is the same thing as when you go to work and you're on a team where two people on that team think things that need to be done a different way. What happens in a professional setting is those people get yeah. separated. As playing D and D, if you only have a few friends that play. You may be stuck with those people. You may not have time to run two games. Or you may... Um, you really like having everybody in the room at the same time. You know, Just know your game's going to run slower. Just know... And everyone needs to be cool with that. And let your players know when they get into it. Look, man, is everybody cool with there being eight of us? You got seven players. That's yeah. eight people at yeah. one table. That gets hot. I don't care what size room you are. That yeah. just gets hot. It gets hot in there. It gets frustrating. It can get stinky. Um, someone can drink my Mountain Dew and be like, "Who the fuck did it?" Uh, there might one person brought weed, but everybody smokes. There's so the problems are just intensified yeah. in a larger group, all of them. And it's not to mention it's already like for some DMs can be wonky creating encounters that are challenging with a group of six to seven. It can be really wonky, and and you know people that really love combat. Um, might not like it because you're crushing yeah. everything because you're already the players with four people in a gaming group attacking a normal challenge rating that befits their party um, is already easy in 5th edition uh, it's player it leans toward the players players are going to win more often than not and as a DM you have to push those envelopes and it's really tough to do in a group of 6 to 7 
for so many reasons that aren't worth talking about right now from everything from players having differences in the way they make characters to the way they play their characters to the types of characters they are and people's experience in the game whether they make a mistake or not all of a sudden these things are compounding and if you try to challenge a group of seven with a really tough encounter the weakest link could get knocked off very easily and that's not that might not be fun for the player so it's already very challenging with all these things combined i feel for this dm i really want their game to be awesome and i you know there i probably have quite a few listeners who really love to play with a large group i always have the older i get the longer i've been doing it the more i keep my groups to four and five so that i can really push the envelopes because what happens is in a group of six or seven or eight um we're learning things about the game as we grow together over the years not just the rules but the way things interact and some of the things that we want to do just are very difficult in a large group and don't come across well right yep tough one good question though all these were good questions yeah that was like a four-part question yeah and you know it was cool getting the warlock with the legend legendary resistance one because i don't often play to super high levels like that so I actually got to do a little research to make sure I knew because I, I I thought I knew the the answer but I wasn't sure. Look at you. Um, so it was cool to be able to like like you know what guy I don't I don't come across that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so let's say that not as, not you often. have a question that you'd like the Grand Tormentor to answer. How would we do that, Jim? Well, we have a Facebook page, um, and I'm on there a lot. Our Facebook page, we share a lot of jokes. We we share some content where I'm releasing these all these new 5th edition creatures. I'm remaking stuff from 2nd edition, believe it yes. or not. Um, from 2nd edition Planescape. I actually bought the book so that I can bring some of those really cool creatures over that haven't been brought into D&D. Um, I'm all, I also am releasing things that I've created myself. We're bringing things from board games in that I think would be cool in D&D. So those, all those stats, these maps, um, all that stuff is there on D and D four twenty guild. We have our own Facebook page, um, and uh, I told I told you before I don't know what's wrong with my email account, but on D and D four twenty dot com, I am the Grand Tormentor at D and D four twenty dot com. So I'm gonna find out. Oh what, yeah, you know, that's what probably user error, but I will. It is user <laughs> error. I'm good at D and D, not computers. So yeah, you can send me an email there or a message on Facebook. Um, you know, you can always send the D and D four twenty page on Facebook. I check those all the time, and that's where a couple of these have come from, and that's where I'm really gaining the most steam um, for questions. So I like answering them on there because I can even do it if I'm at work or something. I can respond to you pretty yeah. quickly. And uh, we can we can have a little chat and address it on air. Thanks for listening to this episode of the D and D four twenty podcast. For everything D and D four twenty related, check out dnd420.com. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can find us there on the website and on YouTube at dnd420. Lastly, as always, if you'd like to support the show, you can do that by telling another DM about the show and by visiting us on Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating and review. Thanks for subscribing and being a part of our work here at D&D 420. We will see you next week.